You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Thank you. It's a privilege to be able to speak this morning. We're continuing our series, uh, After God's Heart, in the book of 1 Samuel. And so we're picking up from two weeks of looking at David and Goliath, which was uh, fantastic to spend some time looking at what does David and Goliath mean for us uh, as a body of believers? What does it mean for us as individuals? It was really good to really meditate on the fact that Jesus is the greater David, that he has won a victory, and us being the fearful Israelites can revel in that victory. Uh, as they did, they routed the enemy camp after the victory had been won. So we walk out of oppression and captivity and into life and victory in Jesus. We've been singing about it this morning. Fantastic. So we, we come to <clears throat> chapter 18 immediately off the back of that victory. So let's have a look. Chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and bow and belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would, as Tom's just led us, we pray that you'd bless it to us, that we would be enriched, that we would be changed by your word. We thank you, your word pierces the heart, splits bone and marrow, that you have things that are life-changing for us to know this morning, right here, right now. So I pray, give us ears to hear. Give us soft hearts. Holy Spirit, have your way with us this morning. We thank you. Amen. Amen. I usually like to ask people to pray for themselves, but Tom did that for us, which is great. Good way to end the worship, I think. Um, So we come to the end of uh, David and Goliath, and immediately into this aftermath of the victory. Saul is naturally impressed with David, this young boy who has managed to defeat this giant that no one else could defeat. And he asks him, come and join us. Come and be part of my household. He, He basically adopts him. Don't go home to your household anymore. Come and be part of us. Be in the king's household. And, uh, and, and David thinks, you know, this is great. Okay, good. Saul sees potential. I'm going to raise up another leader here. But at the moment, Saul still sees David as a, a young boy, really from uh, very much lower than him, uh, from a shepherding background, which he is. So he's a bit of a nobody still. Uh, just notice there that Saul's already sort of forgotten that only a few chapters ago he was saying to Samuel, but me, I'm a nobody. I'm the lowest of the low. Why me? And now he is very much established as, no, I am the king. I am at the top. And this is just a boy. And we'll take him under our wing. He's done good. He's done well. But we'll take him in. And that is why this positive vibe of, yeah, come and join us. Be with us. We see you. We love you. We love how you put your life on the line for us. It doesn't last very long at all. As they return home from victory, the army and Jonathan, Saul and David, uh, the, the word about the victory is long before them got to the cities. And so the women come out of the cities with their tambourine and they're singing and they're dancing and they sing this song. 
Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul does not like this one bit. He hates it. He is enraged with bitter envy. What are they saying? That is so undermining. I am the king. And they're saying that he has killed more than me. He's greater than me. And I read in one of the commentaries, it may be possible that it's just a common parallelism in a song. It may not even have meant to make a point. They were just saying, look who we are. We kill thousands and ten thousands. But Saul didn't take it like that. He took it very personally. You're saying that this boy is greater than me. And from that day on, it says, Saul eyed David from that day on. He was consumed with bitter envy and became determined to get rid of David. In the space of about six verses, Paul embraces and then rejects David in bitterness. He tries to kill him personally. So just to let you know quickly, uh, the, the story we're looking at today goes through about five chapters. But we're not going to read all five chapters. I'll paraphrase a little bit. Uh, we're going to look at David and Jonathan's relationship. But to do that, we need to know what's going on in the context. So Saul is trying to kill David. He personally tries to kill him. He throws a spear at him twice. Says, I'll pin him to the wall. David dodges and manages to go free twice. And then he tries to sort of trick David into uh, a situation, not really trick him, but he asks David if he would like to marry one of his daughters. Um, and he knows that if, if this boy, this shepherd boy, wants to marry a king's daughter, he needs to pay a heavy price. So this is one of the, I think one of the things might be, you know, keep your, your friends close, but your enemies closer. So he wants David close to him. I think the other thing is this. He says, look, because you're not royal, You have to pay a heavy price for this. You know, you you would usually see another royal marrying a a royal. But you're not. You're just a shepherd boy. So what I want from you is I want 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Isn't that bizarre? But obviously what he's saying is I want you to kill 100 Philistines. Otherwise it's just a strange thing. (laughs) Um, And so what he means there, what he's trying, his plan is he's not going to live through this. I'm, going to, I'm telling him to personally go and kill 100 Philistines. That should end it. That should get rid of him. David brings back 200. Lovely wedding present. <laughs> so Saul hasn't killed him off this way. Another way he tries to kill him off is by ordering his soldiers and even his own son, kill David. I want David dead. I want him gone. And Jonathan, uh, as we've just read, has uh, a good friendship with with David, and instead of killing him, he warns him and helps him. And this begins the process of about four years of Saul hunting down David. If we just look at the map, this map is uh, Israel in the time of King Saul. And if you see the top, Gilbeah, down to Horesh, that's about 20 miles, and into the side, it's about 10 miles. And throughout that range, Saul chased and hunted David down. And we see throughout the story Jonathan meeting David in different places. He has to go to different places. Then it seems Saul finds out he's there, so he has to go to the next place. He spends a lot of time in the, uh, the forest of Horesh. And so David is hiding in these places and trying to keep his life safe, knowing the king is after me. It's a great, I found it really interesting reading through these, verses, these chapters this week. It's a great story. There's kind of bits of uh, the Lord of the Rings in there, bits of sort of Braveheart in there. There's even a bit of Ferris Bueller's Day Off in there. 
Have you seen that film? There's this great bit where one of the ways of uh, uh, Mitchell, David's wife, saves him is by making a, uh, a dummy of him and putting it in a bed, covering it up and saying, oh, David's in bed ill. And meanwhile, David's gone off and fleed. That happens in the movie if you don't know it. So there's, there's funny bits. There's a, it's, it's a really interesting read. That there's this journey and this chase. And, uh, and at the same time, there's, uh, there's, there's all this kind of tension. Is he going to get him? Is he not going to get him? And Jonathan is being a friend at this time. And Jonathan's got to weigh up his relationship with his father and his relationship with his friend. And so it's really interesting. There are many things that we could be learning from in these chapters, but we are going to focus on Jonathan and David's friendship. And next week, Tom's going to focus more on Saul and Saul's brokenness. So what is it to know what life-giving friendship is? What is life-giving friendship? The Bible offers us wisdom for friendship in Proverbs. We'll talk about that today. If you're going to look in the, the, the Bible and someone say, where in the Bible do we know about friendship? Probably most people would say, well, David and Jonathan. That is the iconic friendship in the Bible that we know about. The Bible's got a lot to say about friendship. Obviously, God is the author of all life. Before he even created the world, there was friendship in the Trinity. We were made to uh, image God, so we were made for friendship. So the Bible has everything to say about friendship. And unfortunately, we live in an impoverished time in terms of real friendship. We've become too content with lesser substitutions. Pastor and author Scott Sauls names three substitutes. First of all, digital friendship. Not face-to-face, but face-to-screen. Self-disclosure, only flowing one direction. It's easy to hide. Uh, It's easy to put on an image. We settle for followers rather than friends. We make connections, but we don't go any deeper. And when online relationships take priority, the result is usually more loneliness and isolation and not less. Or perhaps another substitute would be transactional friendships, where we treat each other as a means to an end rather than an end in themselves. People become resources rather than human beings. Instead of loving people, we use them for selfish gain, to get into a social circle, to boost our self-esteem. I don't love that person, but when I'm with, I know that they really like me and I get my self-esteem boosted. They say what I like to hear. They do what I like to do. Maybe it's uh, for career advance you might make a friendship. Maybe it's impressing others. I know that I remember when I was at school, if I liked a girl, I would make quite a point of befriending her friends. You know, there's a tactic there. I want to get access here. So I'm going to befriend these people. And it's a selfish tactic to say, I don't really care about you. I'm just trying to get to something else. We can be like that. As soon as these friendships seem more costly than beneficial to us, They're ended. As soon as we think, well, this is not worth the price I'm paying here, we discard them. And maybe that's what you've done, or maybe it's been done to you. And it's painful to think, well, there was nothing about that friendship. You were just using me. Or perhaps we stick to one-dimensional friendships. That's the third substitute Scott Sauls talks about. One-dimensional friendships where we connect over a single shared interest. Maybe a, a, a sports team or a particular social matter that we really, we really strive for. Or, or maybe just an office space. But it's only one interest that we share. 
and we connect over. And therefore, our views, convictions and practices never get challenged. And blind spots never get uncovered. These friendships keep us immature. And they avoid the tension we need to form character. So those are some substitutes to real friendship. We want to avoid those. We want to look into God. You've got more for us than that. C.S. Lewis says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. That's very sad. And it's unfortunately all too familiar for many of us. So let's get back to David and Jonathan. Jonathan was actually a fair amount older than David. I didn't realize that. I always thought they were peers, but Jonathan has been fighting for a long time. He'd been a warrior for a long time before David comes along. It's possible that he was as much as 20 years older than David. But they have a life-giving and remarkable friendship. It is the iconic friendship in the Bible. But it wasn't like they grew up as buddies. And they were just sort of in the same family. They've got no history in common, in fact, apart from, you know, where they live. They didn't spend much time together, even, recorded. There's an undeniable, though, loyal and loving friendship between them. It seems like the battle in chapter 17 is where they meet for the first time. So David has defeated Goliath, and this is where they have come together for the first time. And we could be mistaken to think that Jonathan is a bit of a pathetic, kind of uh, sycophantic, desperate guy. You know, I've seen some of these movies like Braveheart where the king's son is just so pathetic. You know, it's like, oh, just kill him. Come on, get rid of him. So, so rubbish. And you could think, oh, Jonathan is like seeing this David kid and you think, oh, he's killed Goliath. Oh, I just want to be like him. I want to be with him. And, and, I'm, and I'm enamored with him. And, and if I, and it's like that, uh, you know, transactional thing. If I'm with him, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get safety. If I'm with him, I'll get kudos. But it's not actually like that. If we, if we look more carefully, we see that, as I just said, Jonathan himself is a mighty, courageous warrior. He's not pathetic at all. He is a man who has led thousands into battle successfully. We know that he's bravely gone into situations. If you know the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer, when they, they want to go into a place, they're not sure if they're safe. And he's only got his armor bearer with him. And they go into the same enemy camp is just over there. And Jonathan bravely and in faith says, let's go, maybe the Lord will give them into our hands. And on his own, well, not on his own, just him and his armor bearer go in and rout that camp. And he kills 20 men. He is no, by no means a pushover, by no means a, a little weakling looking out for just uh, being sycophantic to David. And of course, we know he's also next in line for the throne. Or he would be, but the way he behaves with David is to give him his cloak, give him his belt, Give him his sword and honor him and say, it's not about this, it's about what the Lord is doing. So we're not really sure why, we're not told why they become sort of instant BFFs. But it seems that Jonathan was clear that God was with David. God's with David. This is a man who God is with and I've got a mutual love and affection for the same God. 
C.S. Lewis also says in his book, The Four Loves, that friendship is one of the most undervalued affections, loves. And the way it begins is usually by people saying, oh, you too. I thought I was alone, but you too. In some area of life or some dream or some hope, and someone else shares it and you think, ah, you too. And that can bring people together. And it seems like David and Jonathan have this, you love the Lord. You have the Lord with you. And they come together through that. We don't know much more than that, but we do know how their friendship starts. It says their souls were knit together and they made a covenant. A covenant is a promise before the Lord. We, we think of covenant, we think of marriage. Or maybe God's covenant with us. It's a promise. It's a commitment. So from the start, they have this commitment. Proverbs 18.24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Sticks. It's talking of commitment, talking of cleaving, coming together, sticking closer than a brother. And that was said in a culture that was far more family-oriented than ours. Closer than a family's member. Close. There's a friend like that. And, and David and Jonathan have this friendship from the word go. So we're going to look at what are the characteristics of life-giving friendship that we can see in this friendship. Well, David eventually had a son called Solomon, who was the king after him. And Solomon asked God, he believed, uh, God said to him, if there's one thing you could have, what would it be? Solomon said, wisdom, give me wisdom. And so he wrote the wisdom book of Proverbs, or most of it, which is devoted to godly wisdom. And there's lots about friendship in there. And Bible teacher Tim Keller teaches that the wisdom for friendships in Proverbs can be explained in four categories. So we're going to look at these four categories and we're going to see how they, um, David and Jonathan display these categories. The first one is constancy. Constancy. As I just said, Proverbs 18.24, a friend sticks closer than a brother. A commitment, a loyalty, an availability. They started out with, let's be friends. You know, the other, only other place I can really think that happens these days is in the school playground, where kids might come together, oh, should we be friends? And I think that's beautiful. I think we don't see that as adults. If, think if an adult came to you and said, should we be friends? You'd kind of think, no. <laughs> um, but it's beautiful. It's a sad thing that we, we, we've got all these insecurities and and things in the way now. And these guys came together and said, let's be friends. Let's commit to being friends. And a godly, loving friendship, a real friendship, it involves constancy, availability, loyalty, being there when the chips are down. Not seeing people as a means to an end, but an end in themselves. A friend does what it takes to stop somebody from falling apart. And we see this in David and Jonathan's commitment to each other in their covenant. And Jonathan proves it later on uh, many times. But one is in chapter 23 when he comes to strengthen David when David needs it the most. David is in a difficult situation. He knows he could die soon. Saul is after him. Jonathan finds out where he is and he goes to that place. And he it says he strengthens him in the Lord. And David also proves his loyalty to Jonathan, years later, he does it a few times, but one example is years later, after Jonathan is long dead, David takes Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who is a crippled boy. He takes him into, by this time David is the king, and takes Jonathan's son into his uh, household 
and says, you will eat with us from now on. You're part of our household from now on because I want to honor Jonathan and my loyal friendship to him. So constancy is a a loyalty and availability, not just when somebody's in the room, but a loyalty to them when they're not in the room. Many times Jonathan has to come between his father and, and David and say, Father, no, you've seen this wrong. And he stands up for Jonathan. And we want to be friends who stand up for people and, and say what needs to be said and honor people, whether they're in the room or not. This is constancy. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And what that's saying there is that family members, brother, is there in crisis. They'll be there, but they haven't really got a choice. They may not be the person that chooses to hang out with you day to day, but they'll be there in crisis. But a friend chooses to be there. A friend will be there, will be constant for you. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. So we go on to the second one, carefulness. Constancy doesn't mean overstaying your welcome. Okay, so constancy is being available, but we've got to be careful as well. Proverbs 25, 17 says, Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Okay, we've got to be careful as well. We're not constant in terms of like, there you are, and I'm following you around like this. Where are you going? Where are you going? What are we doing? What are we doing? Oh, go away. It says, if you're constantly in your friend's house, you'll end up hating you. So we're careful as well, carefulness. Proverbs 27, 14 says, Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. It's not going to bless that person. If they've had a late night and they have been working late and they're exhausted and we, we go, Hey, bang, 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 you in, you in, come on, wake up, wake up. I've got something to tell you. Go away. So we want to be people who are constantly available but careful and we understand and we're aware of what will bless and what will be a curse to our friends. This comes into line with this. If I can be happy when my friend is sad, I'm not a good friend. My friend's going through something very difficult and I don't and I'm not sensitive to that and I can just talk over them and, and ignore that, then I'm not being a friend. Parents will know this. If you have children, it's said you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Because you're connected to them. You can't just blindly say, oh, whatever, I've got my own life to live. We're connected to them. And it's involuntary. But with friendship, it's voluntary. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful to say, look, when you're down, I'm down. I love you. I can't, I can't, just, let you, uh, I can't let, just let you go on your way. The Bible calls us to laugh with those who laugh and mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. We're not to just be insensitive and carry on and be a curse. David in chapter 20, they, they have to say goodbye. There's this, there's this moment where they have to sort of test, is Saul all right with David or not? And Jonathan goes to find out and realizes, no, he really isn't. And so he has to warn David, David, you've got to go. Any moment he's going to attack. You've got to flee. And in that moment, they, they, David is, is heartbroken for many reasons. He's, he's, he's put his life on the line for, this, for the Israelites. And, and he's been welcomed into the family of the, the king. And now he's being rejected. I mean, that's painful. 
And at the same time, he's got to say goodbye to this friend who his soul is knit together with. And, and it says he weeps. And Jonathan weeps together with him. If we're careful with our friends, we know what they're going through. We see what they're going through. And we weep with them. We laugh with them. We celebrate with them when they're going through great celebrations. But we understand what will be a blessing and what will be a curse. Number three is candor. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6 say, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In that vivid, vivid wording there, wounds, the wounds of a friend. You think when you want to wound someone, you know, the, the, the weapon or something, you've got, to, you've got to hit them hard. This has got to penetrate. It's a vivid phrase. And words with your friends will be painful at times. If you're a good friend, you will be able to say things that will be painful. If you are afraid or you think, I'm not allowed to go there with this person, we just don't talk about that, I'm not allowed, then there's not a real friendship. There's something missing. This is probably one of the most conspicuous missing elements of friendship in our time because we live in such an offense culture, don't we? How dare you say that to me? How dare you not honor my plight? What I'm going through, you haven't honored it. Well, you're making a stupid decision. And I'm your friend. Perhaps that needs to be what we say sometimes. These proverbs say that covering up candor is actually like being an enemy. If we live like, like this, oh, I love you too much to say that. I love them too much. I would never say that to them. Do you know what you're really saying? I love myself too much. I love myself too much to go there. I'm not gonna, I, there's possible rejection there. They might not take it well. I love myself too much to say it. We, 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 we fluff it up with this. I love them too much. I would never say that to you. Well, we don't love them then. Because the Bible says we've got to love people with candor. Proverbs 29 verse 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. We can just stroke each other, can't we? And just be so kind all the time. Just say whatever one wants to hear. And the Bible says that is like putting a net before their feet. Especially if you know they are going down a bad path. They're making bad decisions here. And I'm just watching on. But I could never challenge them. I could never do that. When the Bible says actually it's like looking at them going towards uh, a net. And uh, again, it's hard and painful to be a good real friend. It really is. We know this again as parents. I was just thinking just this week, my son's most nights, I've sent them to bed. One of them will come down five minutes later. Can I have a toy? Can I have a book? And just that tiny little silly thing of me saying, look, no, we've said go to bed, go to bed. And then kind of just walking up the stairs again. I actually get a tug, you know. I don't want to hurt my child. But even a tiny thing like that hurts. I want to say, yeah, come, come down. Let's have ice cream. Let's have chocolate. Let's do whatever. I'll get some balloons out. Come on. But I love them. That's not good parenting. No. Come on, you've gone, go to bed. And it hurts only a tiny bit. There'll be other times where I have to say painful things to my children or make painful decisions for them because I love them. And it's the same with friendship. Friendship is painful. If it's not painful at times, then there's something missing. You have to be all of these, though. If we're careful without being candid, we back off and we shut up and we don't help and if we're candid without being careful we bruise and we tear down 
and we hurt. So real friendship is painful for both people. At one time, David has to tell Jonathan, look, your own father is lying to you. He has to say something quite painful to him. Your dad is lying to you. He's manipulating you. And at times, Jonathan often actually has to tell David, you are in trouble. You're in trouble. And how many times do we avoid telling our friends that they need to do something because they're in trouble? Look, you're in tr- I can see the way you're going. You're in trouble. We avoid saying it because we don't want to cause a, 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 a faff. We don't want to ruffle feathers. But we're not being very courageous friends there, are we? I know that uh, when we, we first got married, my wife and I, for a few years, and we're still friends with these people, we would meet with a, a couple on our own, on, uh, separately to each other. And um, I just love this woman for many reasons. But the woman who my wife would meet with, uh, if Esme would say to her, you know, this is a struggle, this is difficult, then uh, she, would, she would say back to her, okay, what, what's your uh, responsibility in this? What, or have you seen this in the right light? Let's look at this objectively. She wouldn't jump in and say, oh, yeah, Tim's an idiot, isn't he? Yeah, Andy's like this. She wouldn't say, yeah, you know, the, 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 one of the comments of our age could be, if you really loved me, you'd agree with me. If you really loved me, you'd be on my side. No, I really love you, and what you're doing is stupid. So don't do it. Okay, so not that that happened. But uh, <laughs> maybe one. Uh, <laughs> Um, but the point is here that we, we love each other. And I want to tell you this, and I'm sure you're aware of this. This church, we're not here to stroke you. We're not here to tickle your ears and just make you think, oh, I've got no challenges in life. And um, God calls us to certain things so that we can have life to the full. Not to destroy it, but to love us. And Jesus was a candid, loving God. We love you. We want to shepherd you well. We want to encourage you. We want to do all the things in this list. So there will be times when we'll say, listen, and hopefully you hear it from here on Sundays. The Bible says this. We're not doing it. Let's get in line with it. Let's find life. So we want to be friends to you. And the fourth one here is counsel. Proverbs 27 verse 9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Sweetness is talking of reassuring, caring, lifting up, the sweetness. And earnest here is talking about being heartfelt, heartfelt from the heart. And counsel is uh, obviously advice, but it's also talking of, it comes from the, the wording of secrets, letting open yourself, opening yourself, and telling, offering honest counsel from the heart. And Many of us would know this proverb, twenty-seven seventeen says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. So counsel is about intimacy. Let's share, let's talk, let's not avoid. And transparency, I'm not hiding from you. Sharing from the heart, being open. And we see this with David and Jonathan. In chapter 23, as I said earlier, I think David comes, uh, comes to a place where he is struggling and uh, he knows he's in real danger Jonathan finds out where he is and strengthens his hand in God he tells David not to fear brings him counsel that will lift him up and they share life together if it's always sweet and reassuring or if it's always challenging the balance isn't good 
Okay? It's lacking. But if it has the balance, there's chance of real loving friendship there. So I'm coming near to the end here, really, but there could be two reactions as we've looked at life-giving friendship here. One reaction could be longing. You could think, oh, I just wish I had friends like that. Maybe I used to have friends like that. I haven't. I haven't got friends like that at the moment. You could long for it. We live in this relationally poverty-stricken culture, and people are lonely even in crowds. And there could be a longing, I want that. And I want to say to you, there is hope for that. There really is hope for that. There is responsibility on your side, and there is hope for that. Hope in Jesus. We're going to see in just a second, because the second reaction you could have was to be crushed. You could think, that bar is way too high. (laughs) If we measure ourselves honestly, we know I'm failing. I can't do that. I can't be that type of friend. I can't do all of that. All the things you said we shouldn't do are the ones I do. And you could respond in that way. I'm crushed by this. Where do I get my power to do this? Well, where we get our power from is in Jesus Christ. As we were worshipping, as we were talking. As Christians, we know there is a power. There is hope. There is something that's happened that has turned the whole world right side up. This broken world where we couldn't do this has been turned up for us. And we look to Jesus to find this man who walked beside people. The one who lets us in close. The one who is the way, the truth, the life. The one who speaks words that split bone and marrow right to the point. The one who unites people and is not afraid to divide people. The one who shares his brokenheartedness and the one who's loved us with an everlasting love. This is where we look to. Jesus in John 15 explains the cross in terms of friendship. Explains why he came. He says this, No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you. Isn't that stunning? No longer do I call you servants. You're not distant anymore. This isn't formal. I've called you friends. I've made a way. As I said at the beginning, the Trinity is a friendship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in a dance, in a wonderful relationship with each other, always loving, always together, in in constancy, in candor, in carefulness, in counsel, loving and lifting each other up. God made us in that image. So we're made for relationship. When Adam and Eve walked in the garden, it's a picture of friendship, of relationship with God. And we broke that friendship with our sin, with our rejection of God, with our every day, every moment. Saying, God, I don't want you, I want to go my own way. Let alone being brought up in Adam, we all make this choice. God, I don't want you, I'm breaking this friendship with you. And usually in a friendship like that, being broken down, the other person reciprocates with, oh, I don't want you either then. Forget you, I'm bitter. Or maybe I'm broken hearted and I'm in pain. But usually the other person walks away as well. But the Jesus God is committed to us. The Jesus God lets us in. He trusts you again. 
You may think, oh, I'd let him down. He'll never, he'll never trust me again. He trusts you again. He came to turn the world right side up. And he never lets us down. So this changes everything. Where do I get my power from to do this, this life-giving friendship that you've said to him? I can't do it. Well, Jesus has changed everything. So now there is a, a king on high who, who knows me. Not just a king, my king, my friend. He said, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And now I have this friend who will never reject me. I can love people without fear of rejection. People will reject me, but the greatest one, the judge of all things, the one who knows all things, will never reject me. So I can handle a bit of rejection from people. I know that I'm secure in Christ. The one who will never let me down. I can live without fear of being let down. People will let me down. But he will never let me down. Ever. I can stand secure in him. So I'm liberated to be this friend I'm called to be in the Bible. It's saying, come on, stand up. Be proper friends. Don't hide. Don't hide behind screens or or projections or, or insecurities. Because perfect love casts out fear. So we come through this wall We come out of fear. We come out of rejection. We come out of loneliness. And we're befriended by the greatest friend there ever could be. And our fear starts to drain away. As we know this truth and it sets us free. Not just I say the truth and it sets me free. I know the truth. And we walk out of foolishness and lies and insecurity. Perfect love that we've received. It casts out fear And it enables us, it empowers us to love people and be a proper friend. Christian friendship gives us a beautiful opportunity to love people who at the same time deeply like us. You can look around the room and say, yeah, deeply like me. And then look around the room and say, but deeply different to me as well. It gives us this great opportunity. That's real friendship and it produces fruit. I'm not just going to get with people who are exactly the same and agree on everything, but we agree on him. And I'm going to let that, I'm going to, you know, like being in a, a if you put uh, stones in a, in a bag, you shake them together, eventually, eventually, the hard, rough edges will get smoothed out. And it's not in spite of the friction, it's because of the friction. So we want to be a people that we, we do life together. We say, I'm not scared to let that person rub up against me, because I need that. I need life-giving friendship. And I want to say to you today, if you've come here today and you think, okay, but I'm not a Christian, you can do this today. You can make Jesus the friend that you need at your deepest level. He's offering it to you, saying, I'm here, I'm available to you. I've, I've died so that you can come in. I've done all this work. So these, these weirdos who were shouting and singing earlier on, you can be one of those. You want that? You can enjoy life to the full. You can enjoy freedom and liberty to say, at my deepest level, I know a friendship that will never let me down. And I can become a real friend to those around me. I'm going to live with constancy, candor, carefulness and counsel with each other, don't we? Life-giving friendship. It's on offer for us. We can live like this. It takes, uh, takes some courage sometimes. But he is faithful. He will never let us down. We'll make mistakes. He will be faithful. He will be full of grace. He's patient to the end. 
and he's for us. And he wants to see his children gather together, loving each other, rubbing up against each other, metaphorically. Okay? We're going to live like this. We're going to be this church. We're going to shine a light for Jesus in this town. Let's stand, shall we? We're going to sing a song to finish. We're going to worship God together. Father, we thank you so much. You have life for us. Life in abundance. You don't want us hiding in fear. You don't want us pretending. You don't want us stepping back from challenges that you have to give us life. So Lord, help us. Help us to love each other in the way that you've loved us. Help us to love each other like Jesus loved. Never afraid to say what needed to be said. Walking with people. Talking with people. Giving time to people. Letting children come to him. Lord, we love you. We love what you've done for us. We love you've turned the world right side up. And we live in the goodness of it. Bless this church. Help us to be a blessing to those who have no idea about this friendship. Who don't understand this. Help us to show them the love of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content.